0: Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. In the plain of Shinar, in the land of Nimrod, a king erected a statue to himself, and commanded that it be worshipped. Hello, I'm Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. In this whole series, I'm teaching uh, a series based on my new book of Kings and Prophets. I hope that you're enjoying it, and I I pray that the book will be a great blessing to you. I'm I'm very satisfied with this book. The foreword is by Dr. Charles Stanley himself. He did a great job with that and uh and the response to the book has been very very positive and and I want you to have it. At the end of this podcast the announcer is going to tell you to have an early how to have an early release copy. We're ready to get these out to you immediately that you place your order it goes in the mail from right here at the Leader's Notebook. I want you to have the book and I pray that it'll be a blessing to you. Christmas is ahead. You know, people, pastors, and others that need this book, which is about the conflict between spiritual authority and secular power. I believe that it will be an important book, particularly at this intersection of American history. I'm going to be teaching uh, the next few weeks based on this book, and I hope that you will be blessed by it, encouraged, and challenged. We began by talking about how John the Baptist stands as like the Colossus of Rhodes, with one foot squarely in the Old Testament, one foot in the New Testament, and that he is a sort of the New Testament symbol of the friction, the conflict, his, his public denunciation of Herod Antipas for his incestuous relationship with his sister in law, that conflict is sort of the New Testament symbol of the power-against-power rub that causes the terrible interaction between some kings and some prophets. In uh, the plain of Shinar, in the land of Nimrod in the Old Testament, a king erects a statue of himself and commands that it be worshipped. Deep within himself, this king knows that he is not really a god. He can only be deluded up to a certain level. He cannot work miracles. He's not eternal. He knows all this. But the bowing of the multitudes is not really about worship in any true sense of worship. The king doesn't really want to be prayed to. He wants to be bowed to, submitted to, surrendered to. It's all about power. Once you get your mind around that, then you understand much of what happens from Beijing to Washington, D.C., that power is the issue. Now, in the plane in front of that uh, statue, there are the multitudes all bowing and worship. There are three young men. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three young men. They are enslaved captives. They have no power in themselves, and yet they have power. Of all of the people in the nation, they simply will not bow to the idol. They're facing the threat of being incinerated alive, thrown into a, a furnace, but they refuse to worship the statue. The contest is now on. You see it? That's power against power. They seem to have no power, but they have real power. The king seems to have power, but he has no power. Now it's power against power. This moment is not really about whether these three Hebrew boys will bow and worship. I mean, it is about that, but not exactly. Like Toto in The Wizard of Oz, The Little Dog, we snatch back the curtain to reveal what is really going on. The real contest is the power behind the king's throne versus the throne of power, which is behind the Hebrew boys. It is a tale of power against power, kingdom against kingdom. It is a drama in the supernatural realm being played out in the natural realm. It is not just king versus slaves. It is seen versus unseen. The apparent conflict versus the invisible war. This is the truth of human history. The visible realm is always colliding with the invisible realm, ever determined and shaped and even conquered by what is unseen. When Moses confronted Pharaoh, when Elijah called out Ahab, when John the Baptist denounced Herod Antipas, There were forces at work greater than both the prophets and the kings. The prophets knew this, and in that knowledge they stood unbowed and unbeatable. Those kings who denied the prophetic utterances, they acknowledged no power but their own, and they were doomed because of it. Sometimes, though, not often, because royal pride is a powerful obstacle, the tangential vectors of these prophet-versus-king interactions suddenly dramatically realigned and shifted from a collision course onto a plane of agreement. The prophets who came before kings as confronters sometimes became advisors, sometimes even valued counselors. Occasionally, the two adversaries evolved to become allies. This was never because the prophet backed down. The prophet didn't moderate what he was saying. He didn't didn't soften it, sugarcoat it in order to become an ally with the king. The king recognized the divine power behind the prophet and realigned himself to become an ally with the prophet. Of course, the most notable kingly reversal in this order of events was David in the matter of Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan publicly denounced his king. Nathan could easily have been killed over it. It could have led to the death of both Nathan and David. But David reacted to Nathan's public confrontation differently than Herod reacted to John the Baptist. David could have had Nathan killed just as Herod had John the Baptist killed. But David's confession was not just the fruit of a guilty conscience. Listen to this, a very important. It was the submission of a king to a greater sovereign. A repentant soul acknowledging the greater will, the superior power of God. What could easily have escalated into an explosion of royal rage and the murder of a man of God was diffused, By a yielded confession, conviction, brokenness, and repentance saved David's throne and at the same time, probably saved Nathan's life. What it came down to is this. David, who held all the apparent human power, saw that he actually had none. A prophet without any secular position, he wasn't the king or mayor or governor of anything certainly not the empirical power that was David's. That prophet held the true reins of power. David discovered the secret contradiction that lies at the heart of the clash between kings and prophets. David won because he yielded. David, who had apparent power, would have lost if he had exercised it. Instead, he won because he yielded to the higher unseen power of the living God. It doesn't always end this well. Herod murdered John the Baptist, decapitating him on the whim of a vengeful seductress. Herod and John are a study in contrast. Herod both hated and feared John the Baptist. John hated only sin and feared no king in this world at all. Certainly not Herod. Herod had the power of Rome behind him. John had the power of heaven behind him. Herod's home was a palace, John's was a desert. To the human eye, it was John who lost his head, and Herod who kept both his woman and his throne. In the all-important supernatural realm, however, it was John who gained a crown of glory, and Herod who lost his soul. King Herod the Great endured the wrath of Almighty God and earned the eternal scorn of history. John endured the hatred of an incestuous puppet king, but earned the embrace of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I I want to explore in the next few weeks and in this book that I want you to have some of the stories of prophets and kings and the kings specifically to whom they were sent. Sometimes these stories are written in pain and in blood. These accounts are recorded in Scripture for our benefit. There are lessons to be learned from every interaction of these ancient tyrant kings and the God-sent prophets with whom they went toe-to-toe. Their struggle is not theirs alone, nor were there higher truths of their experience for their time alone. In other words, those kings had to learn a lesson, but we can learn lessons from them. They are for now. These lessons are for now, as they have been for all ages before us, and they're for us in the 21st century. They are part of the ongoing warfare between the here and now and the not yet and forever. It is kingdom against kingdom. It still is. Power against power. The temporal against the eternal. The seen against the unseen. These, then, are tales of power. Stories of what may be learned in the collision between kings and prophets. Two great questions remain. Who are the real kings and who are the real prophets? The greater of these two questions is the latter. Who are the real prophets? Phony kings are dangerous, but they are not nearly as dangerous. As false prophets. In 1869, in a tiny and profoundly impoverished village in Siberia, a baby boy named Grigory was born. In the manner of his people, he grew up ignorant and the illiterate peasant. In fact, he did not learn to read until he was an adult. Still, Grigory seemed to have a gift. He impressed others with what they identified or misidentified as his mystical powers, particularly the power to heal. On the strength of these gifts or the rumors of these gifts, he moved to Stalingrad where amazingly he found access to the, to the court of the Tsars. He was hired by the wife of Tsar Nicholas. The Romanov family Admitted this man, Gregory, into the very heart of their family. The Tsarina, Nicholas' wife, had heard of Gregory's miraculous, quote unquote, miraculous powers to heal. She was drawn to this mystic because she had a son who suffered from hemophilia. So she believed having this man of spiritual power in the royal palace could keep her son from hemorrhaging to death. And it seemed for a time that it might be true. The boy did seem to improve. On several occasions, Gregory prayed for the little boy and the bleeding stopped. This rough, rude mystic thus became a fixture in the sophisticated Russian royal household of the Romanovs. Gregory may have had supernatural power, but he was not a moral man. He collected bribes, and extorted sexual favors from people wanting access to the Tsar. He used his access to the royal family to sell access to the royal family. His behavior became notorious in all of Russia. The Russian people and the the Russian leaders around the Tsar realized how evil and wicked he was. But the Tsarina, the wife of the Tsar, would not send the man away. She feared so desperately for the life of her son. Sensing that the tide of political power was turning against him, this man Gregory, publicly and dramatically declared that Russia would lose World War I unless the Tsar himself went to the front and commanded the troops. The Tsar, it turned out, was a man easily duped. He obeyed this manipulative false prophecy. This, of course, removed the Tsar from the palace and gave Grigory unhindered access to the Tsar's wife, to the Tsarina. The situation became so desperate, so horrible, that finally a band of Russian nobles murdered Grigory on the 30th of December 1917. Grigory Rasputin, his name Rasputin, has become synonymous with false prophets. Dark, sinister, mysterious mystics, quote unquote, who exert undue influence on kings, emperors, and generals throughout history. Contrast that terrible story with another from the history of the United States. On May 26th, 1785, General George Washington, who was soon to be elected President of the United States, wrote this Seemingly inconsequential entry into his diary for that day. Quote, found a Dr. Coke and a Mr. Asbury here, meaning here, meaning at his house. The two last Methodist preachers recommended by General Roberdeau, the same who expected yesterday, after dinner, Mr. Coke and Mr. Asbury went away. That's all the general wrote of this meeting. I entertained a Dr. Coke and a Mr. Asbury. They stayed for dinner and they left. On that same day, May 26, 1785, Dr. Coke, a Welsh missionary, sent to America by John Wesley to help Francis Asbury administer the Burgeoning Methodist Church in the New World. Coke wrote in his diary that he and Asbury pled with General Washington to sign a petition opposing slavery and to free his own slaves. The men made it clear to General Washington that they believed the future of the United States was in the balance. Washington expressed to them his personal opposition to slavery. He was opposed to slavery, but he declined to sign the petition or to free his slaves. General Washington owned 317 slaves. He provided in his will that 123 of those slaves would be freed at his death and at Martha's death, his wife. He wanted to make sure his beloved wife was cared for, yet the year the general died, Martha, a deeply Christian and compassionate woman, immediately freed all the family slaves. The visit between Francis Asbury and George Washington happened in 1785. Eighty years later, in 1865, the 13th Amendment was passed, freeing the slaves, but only after the nation had been torn to shreds. More than 700,000 Americans were killed in horrible Civil War combat. Life and history are filled with what ifs. What if Tsar Nicholas had seen Rasputin for the evil fraud that he was? What difference would it have made? Would the Romanov family still have been executed by the communists? Would Russia have turned to communism? Would it still be what it is today? We'll never know. But the what if lingers in the air. A greater and more poignant what if for us in America What if General Washington had signed the petition that Coke and Asbury brought to him in 1785? What if he had freed his slaves and then convinced Jefferson to do the same? Indeed, what if he had convinced all the other slave owners who were at the Constitutional Convention, and together they had taken a bold stand to outlaw slavery from the beginning of the Republic? Maybe the Civil War never would have happened. Perhaps 700,000 Americans wouldn't have died in that nightmare. Again, what if, and we'll never know. The Bible is filled with stories of leaders, kings, and generals whose lives and nations were impacted by the spiritual, prophetic counsel of prophets. They either received or rejected them. In this current book of Kings and Prophets, I want to explore the interactions between Kings and Prophets. These interactions are about the natural transformed by the supernatural and of the earthly, daily, and almost mundane intersected by anointed spokesmen of the will of God. There is much to learn from the interaction of Kings and Prophets. I'm so glad that you've joined today. This is The Leader's Notebook, and I'm Mark Rutland. To order a copy of Dr. Mark Rutland's new book of Kings and Prophets, please visit the store at drmarkrutland.com. Enter promo code KINGS30 to receive 30% off of each book, or call us toll-free at 888-823-8772. Thank you for listening to The Leader's Notebook.